Hello, you're listening to The Sower, a podcast of the Ciceronian Society. The Ciceronian Society is a community of Christian scholars and public intellectuals committed to the examination of three core themes, tradition, place, and things divine, and their role in a civilization built upon the principles common to the traditions of historic Christianity. To learn more about us, our events, the podcast, our journal, Pietas, to sign up for our newsletter and make your tax-deductible gift, please go to ciceronianSociety.org. That's C-I-C-E-R-O-N-I-A-N-S-O-C-I-E-T-Y.org. I'm Josh Bowman, Vice President of the Ciceronian Society, and before introducing our guest, please join me in prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray, O Lord, that you would bless our conversation and that all we say and do would bring glory and honor to you. Amen. We're recording this on the afternoon of October 5th, and I'm excited to introduce our guest today, my friend Dr. Dennis Durst. Dennis is a longtime regular among the Ciceronian Society crowd with a Master of Divinity degree from Lincoln Christian Seminary and a Ph.D. from St. Louis University. He serves as an Associate Professor of Theology at the Kieran School of Bible and Ministry at Kentucky Christian University, where he has taught since 2003. He has presented lectures in Ecuador and Dominican Republic on various topics relating to historical theology and ethics, and he is both a professor and a pastor. Now, I know that we're here to talk about your book, Dennis, but before we get to that, first of all, welcome. Uh, tell us about your work as a pastor. Yeah, so early in my career, I served in campus ministries first, uh, right out of college at University of Nebraska. And then a little bit later, while I was in seminary, I was at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. And, uh, but, but throughout my adult life, I have also served as a part-time preaching minister at several small congregations. Uh, currently, I preach at the East Side Church of Christ here in Grayson, Kentucky. Grayson, Kentucky. that for around three years. Fantastic. Where, help us, uh, where is Grayson, Kentucky? So, Relative uh, to like Lexington or Louisville. It's between Lexington and uh, Huntington, West Virginia. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. Real Appalachia there. All right, good. good. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, I, I've known you for almost a decade now, and I either didn't know or completely forgot about your work as a pastor, so I'm glad you reminded me about that. And it's such a great example of what we at the Ciceronian Society are trying to do, which among several things is that we're trying to encourage scholars like yourself uh, to find ways to serve the local church and contribute to intellectual discipleship. Um, Dennis is also a fan of jazz and progressive rock, which I knew, but I've learned that he's also an avid table tennis player. I had no idea how, but we may need to incorporate that into our conference festivities. Um, yeah, that, that would be fantastic. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm not sure. All, I'm not all sure. about that. Yeah, all about that. Um, we could, you know, I, yeah, we could definitely have some contests over that, something ridiculous, community building activity. Um, or just completely pointless and make everybody laugh. I, I, we, ha- we have several people who attend the conference who I'm pretty sure would be terrible at it, myself included, and that would be that'd be, that'd be a good laugh. Um, now, your, your first book, 2017 book, Eugenics and Protestant Social Reform, I remember you presented on that at an earlier conference, which explored the intersection of religion, science, and social reform movements in the early 20th century. Then you went back a little bit for your 22 book, and your 2022 book, and the subject of today's episode, which is that book, is The Perils of Human Exceptionalism, Elements of a 19th Century Theological Anthropology, published by Lexington Books. And you can find a link to purchase the book in the show notes. Now let's start on page one of that book, 
um, where you say, quote, human exceptionalism is the conviction that human beings are made in the image of God as ensouled bodies, integrating intellectual, emotional, social, psychological, and moral dimensions of human life into a flourishing whole and are different in kind from non-human creatures, end quote. And you're interested in how the 19th century thinkers challenged and undermined this otherwise ancient view. And I remember thinking that the book felt like an unintended prequel to C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man. Now, let's start with this, this first question for you, Dennis. Um, What was it about human exceptionalism, as you've defined it, that made it such a target for criticism in the 19th century? Yeah, that's a pretty complicated uh, question, but thank you. (laughs) <laughs> uh, one <You're> factor, <laughs> yeah, great. Uh, one factor was developments in modern science, of course, uh, which is often noted, right? Led mm-hmm. people to see how tiny our planet is in the vastness of space, or uh, people exploring deep time in the debates over the age of the Earth and geology. Uh, further increased studies of the structures of various animals in zoology and then laying them out side by side with each other. Got people thinking about the similarities, how these might have come about as a kind of a reassessment of natural history, shall we say. Mm-hmm. And that humans were somewhat reduced to something like a link in a grander chain of being. Uh, that kind of language would be common. Mm-hmm. Right about the same time, biblical criticism is on the rise. Um, and it was subjecting the ancient scriptures to scrutiny, not from a perspective of faith, but really more from a, a starting posture of skepticism in the wake of the Enlightenment, uh, and uh, an undermining of a variety of forms of social authority is kind of going on in the culture, too, uh, both in the state and the church. Think of the French Revolution, of course, at the end of the 18th century. But then by the late 1840s, of course, every major nation in Europe was either deeply divided or in a state of open revolution. Mm-hmm. And I think, just as I thought about this just today, right, <laughs> another factor may have been that the Enlightenment made an overpromise. Okay, see if this makes mm-hmm. sense. Human reason will be able to solve all our problems and usher in utopia. Well, with the uh, uh, people beginning to live closer and closer together in your urban centers with overcrowding, and without developing a good infrastructure to welcome them. There was a good quantity of shared misery <laughs> in yeah. human company, right? So the Industrial Revolution could make you feel like a number or just a cog in an impersonal machine. And the resultant breakdown of community, okay, something you could take for granted in a village or in a hamlet or a small town, uh, the loss of that and the you know, urban problems kind of soured people's assessment of human nature, I think. I think it's a good point. Yeah, I, I never thought of it that way. I, I, I used to live in, in Washington, D.C., and you know, you're know you on the metro, you're going to work, you're in just this giant mass of humanity, right? But you feel no one's saying hi to you, right? You, you're not even worried that anyone's going to see you. you. You feel like you're just, you're part of the engine that moves this <laughs> this train or this bus. Um, you, it's It's... It, it can feel dehumanizing. It doesn't have to be. Um, I there's, mean, but a, a, there's a great uh, there's a great film in the early history of film with Charlie Chaplin, and I don't okay. know if you've seen it, but he's basically working in a factory, and he ends up just all ground up in the in the gears of this giant machine. <laughs> and it's very symbolic. 
<laughs> right. And of course, he's great, right? So, right. Yeah, but but it was uh, visually quite quite good. Good. Now, this book covers an impressive number of thinkers. I don't remember Charlie Chaplin, but um, in schools of thought. Now, chapter three looks at the way uh, Friedrich Schleiermacher tried to. Uh, redefine theology as a discipline. Uh, that uh, chapter four looks at the the impact of Darwin on the on this conversation. Chapter five considers the challenge to human exceptionalism presented by uh, what you call the anti theologians like Feuerbach, Comte, and uh, Maudsley and Nietzsche. I think I said those right. And all of that's yeah. re- relatively well tread ground. But then in chapter six, you point us to the importance of uh, phrenology with a ph. Um, in the story of, which is not typically talked about in the story of theology and science, explain to our audience what phrenology is, because most of us don't use that in casual or at even formal conversation, and why this is so important for your argument. Yeah, so in trying to come up with a, a scientific account of human nature, um, the studies of the brain and, and how it influences, you know, behavior and the complex personality traits becomes a point of fascination, right? Mm-hmm. And so uh, phrenology built on early studies of the brain and efforts to map its functions and sort them into different regions. And we still have a version of that in brain science today, but it was very crude the way it was initially trotted out. So you can do a Google image search and it'd be interesting and you'd find lots of drawings of these proposed regions of the brain uh, that uh, are in all kinds of phrenology textbooks. Uh, the assumption arose that the brain and its different sized regions for different personality traits were very complex, you know, features of, of human mental life, right? Uh, mm-hmm. That these would have a shaping effect on the skull mm-hmm. and that the skull, uh, you know, you could read from the skull by measuring it carefully and feeling it, uh, mm-hmm. its bumps and contours and so forth, that you could actually make predictions about human behavior, particularly uh, criminal or antisocial human behavior, right, by investigating the contours of the skull. And so you'll see a lot of phrenology and craniology in the uh, uh, criminology textbooks of the late, uh, mid to late 19th century. Mm-hmm. Now, early figures in phrenology, including Gall and Spurzheim, took a pretty materialistic or naturalistic mindset into their theories. It's just, you know, science to them. Uh, this yeah. opened them to the objections from clergymen in the religious community, however, that they were espousing some kind of skepticism, which would be uh, frowned upon broadly in the culture. The next generation of phrenology promoters tended to be more in the vein of popularizers or mainstreamers of the ideas. Yeah. And so uh, you can imagine, you know, George Combe with a box full of skulls, you know, going and doing public lectures and letting people feel the skulls and so forth. And mm-hmm. He's explaining what these different features mean and so on. And Orson Squire Fowler, whose uh, who's, uh, enterprise was just a, a few blocks from P.T. Barnum, actually. So right. there's, there's kind of an interesting connection there. <laughs> uh, was a, a, himself a great popularizer of phrenology had his own uh, printing press and, and publisher, was a publisher. So uh, to broaden the appeal, you have to appeal to religious people because America especially is a pretty religious place, right? Mm-hmm. So phrenology is almost put forth, I, I would say, as a new gospel, right? They ultimately mm-hmm. unsuccessfully try to integrate it with a religious ethos. And these men were not really friendly toward religious traditions or theology. They kind of 
top down uh, toward theologians, but they tended to appeal to the crowd or uh, appeal to the common person uh, who's easily swayed and not so much to intellectuals who began to see the problems with phrenology and critique it even when it's claimed are made to be a science, right? Mm-hmm. So if you read Fowler, he said that the power of phrenology is so great as a science that it will, and here's a quote, prostrate and ride over whatever religious doctrines, forms, or practices conflict with it. It's a pretty bold claim, right? <laughs> <laughs> you think that's bold? Check out the follow-up. He, say, mm-hmm. he added that if even the Bible could be found to clash therewith, then would the Bible go by the board. <laughs> okay. Well, you can imagine that this would not have pleased conventionally religious folks at all, but there were still those who thought you could harmonize phrenology and religion, but the religion basically would have to capitulate to phrenology, basically. Religion really wasn't, you know, integrally uh, put into the phrenological uh, assessment of things. But religious rhetoric. It's so striking that you know, this was t- taken seriously uh, by so many people. Um, yeah, oh, very much. You know, and, and <laughs> but you're right, it, it is part of it. Like, can, can we look at the body and say, you know, what we thought was a religious explanation was actually more of a kind of physiological or biological explanation. In fact, you know, maybe it's that, um, uh, that, that we're just, you know, we're, we're, we're more like animals. We'll come back to that. Um, yeah, but, the religious aspirations were thought to be at the very crown of the skull, you know, the brain. The, so, oh, you know, okay. Lift, lift, lifting you up, right, and, and ennobling you. Uh, and so if, you, so if something but happened like, to the top of your head. It's spiritual, but it's still physical, right? So it, it's really not very consistent. It's, it's um, it, <laughs> trying to make something incarnational in the wrong way, um, yeah, in, 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 a, in a sense. Um, that's really interesting. Now, can... You know, as you can see uh, from our, our conversation, a lot of interdisciplinarity here. Um, it's a very uh, wide-ranging subjects for this book. So chapter 7 looks uh, at the advocates of the social gospel and Christian socialism, the way they fit in the story. And then chapter 8 really caught my attention for personal reasons, and g- given your treatment of the transcendentalists. And to me, this was a crucial part of your book because, and as I've said elsewhere, it, it's here that we get to the in transcendentalism, especially in Thoreau, we get the roots of environmental thought, which would seem to mount one of the most persistent challenges to human exceptionalism. Um, now, I want you to tell us how to, the transcendentalists fit into this story a little more. Um, and I'm also wondering, to what extent does um, uh, the, the, the human exceptionalism or the reaction to it presage um, uh, the later attacks on anthropocentrism, if you've ever heard of that phrase? Yeah, so, I mean, we could take uh, this one first. So, yeah, anthropocentrism is the idea that that uh, we have a tendency, right, to define things in terms of our own aspirations and needs as humans, mm-hmm. and that can lead us to reading reading that into things, right, or even reading that into, say, animal behavior, right? Right. We've, if, we've ha- if you've had a pet, you've done this, frankly, right? Mm-hmm. So... I mean, I talk to my dog all the time, and in fact, in the in the book on the cover of the book, there's a dog. Uh, if you if you look, you'll find it. And <laughs> I, I love that because oh, yeah, I, I see it. Yeah, in, in the in the index, dogs dogs in there for about three or four times because Darwin <laughs> and, and William James both talk about dogs. So, 
So I thought that was cute. And my dog was my constant companion as I'm writing the book. So there you go. Of course. Yeah, so kind of props to Katie. So anyway, um, the, so this this is uh, this this anthropomorphism is something that uh, people could. Um, it's a fer, it's a fairly malleable term, don't you think? Yeah. Uh, in other words, how it's used really depends a lot on context. So maybe you could flesh out the question a little bit further for me. What, how's yeah, you well, seeing that term? You know, I mean, maybe, um, you know, you think about anthropocentrism as being, you know, not so much human, it's uh, putting the interests of the interest, the economic, physical, material, spiritual, emotional, political needs and rights and, and um, ex- uh, experiences of humanity above other species. And w- one of the uh. things that, that struck me here is that, uh, in order to kind of inhabit, and, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but in order to kind of inhabit anthropocentrism, you almost have to take a, a you have to assume, or and I should say, in order to critique anthropocentrism, you have to assume that humans um, are are simply one of many species, right? That that we're we are just animals, just a really really advanced animal, um, and. Yeah. And, and, and to me, that's that's problematic from a Christian perspective. It doesn't mean that we don't care about the environment, certainly not. But that right. um, attacking anthropocentrism may not be the um, the answer here. Um, yeah. and, and part of me sees a connection between what you're calling human exceptionalism and anthropocentrism, the, the, the latter having more of a, we'll call it a political, anthropological, ethical connotation, while human exception exceptionalism is more of a kind of a theological, uh, uh, maybe even scientific term. Right. So when we look at the animal world, it, it is kind of as Tennyson, 19th century poet, would say, red in tooth and claw, right? Yeah, so yeah, a, yeah. a great deal of survival of the fittest. It seems that humans somewhat uniquely, you know, are, are caring for animals and through animal husbandry and so forth and or having pets and, and this and that. That, that actually... Our our exceptionalism is part of that that moral awareness, right? Of our need to and our duty to and our responsibility to care for, steward the rest of the created order, right? Yeah. So so yeah, that, that that's an old kind of critique of uh, of Christianity. Say well that that the notion of dominion over the earth has led to you know rapaciousness and and destruction of the environment. Well. Maybe, but I think probably greed, one of the yeah. you know, big sins that Christianity actually condemns, greed's probably served a bigger role, right? So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Uh, so let's, let, let's, let's go back then. It, it, you know, I'll, I'll get off on these environmental tangents, but um, I want to go back to the, the transcendentalist question because um, you, you, the transcendentalists are definitely an important part of the story in Chapter 8 of the book. Um, how, how would you say that they fit into this story specifically? So basically, uh, their chapters later, after I give a full chapter to Friedrich Schleiermacher, Schleiermacher kind of, you know, took, uh, who was a colleague of Hegel, but they, they clashed a lot, right, in right, Germany, right. in scholarship. But, but this idea of a, uh, a feeling, uh, religion is basically a feeling of absolute dependence upon the absolute. And so that notion of a kind of de-theologized God, right, in the absolute 
which makes it more uh, malleable in a sense as a concept. Uh, I think it was appealing to transcendentalists like maybe Emerson, right? And so the transcendentalists were fascinated with German idealism generally, which had a secular version in Hegel, but the more theological version in Schleiermacher. And in a sense, the transcendentalists kind of tamed and popularized and arguably, I think, secularized this idealist tradition for an American audience. Yeah. And so they're, they're, uh, these ideas were appealing most to Unitarians at first. Why does that matter? Well, they're uh, becoming a dominant force in, in Harvard and its environs, right, in Massachusetts at the time. And they were already at odds with historic Orthodox creeds of Christianity, both right. Catholic and Protestant, right? And so Emerson very briefly served as a Unitarian minister. His mom wanted him to be one, but uh, he, he, he really couldn't stick with it. Uh, he didn't, didn't like the ritualism and the Lord's Supper and so forth. And so he, even though that's a fairly you know, broad religion, he found that even that too restrictive. So he left the pastorate behind by, I think, the early 1830s. Now, we read Emerson. I don't know what your experience with reading him is, but I find him a little frustrating. And yet, <laughs> inspiration, in, inspirational by turns, right? Yeah. So he, he I mean, the, he's a very quotable man. And so he seems to contradict himself a good bit, but I don't know that he would even care because he lives in the present moment. So um, I read him as taking the idea of the divine, divesting of, its, of any of its Christian particularity, and melding it with some notions from Eastern religions. Mm -hmm. um, and we end up with a kind of humanity deified, or uh, humans as gods incognito. He says, when I meet my neighbor, you know, Jove is waving at Jove. Um, it's mm -hmm. a way of saying, the God in him is waving at the God in me. Mm -hmm. um, and so the, the the particularity of God, you know, is kind of gone, and there's this kind of vague, imminent, uh, you know, pantheistic notion of God, you know, permeating all, but not really having dis discernible attributes like Christian theology would demand. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, you want to you want to move on to Thoreau? Yeah. Well, wanna, I mean, I, follow I, up I wanna, on Emerson. I want to. You know, we've talked about Emerson a lot, and we talked about Thoreau. We, we, I know you mentioned Thoreau, but I actually want I kind of want to get a little deeper here because you think about the the, the transcendentalists, right? And and you, you can get to this kind of pantheistic view, or you know, we are gods ourselves, you know, kind of idea. Um, how, how does that? You would think that that would exacerbate, um, or not, not exacerbate. It would it would encourage or increase a sense of human exceptionalism. But you're saying that, that it, it doesn't do that, right? That yes. in a sense that the transcendentalism. So if God is everything, isn't God nothing, right? Uh, <laughs> so okay, if, okay. if man is the oversoul or he's just kind of this, you know, your individuality f kind of fades out of view and out of importance and your general, you know, sharing in the totality of humanity becomes important, then what does that do to your individual dignity, really? Right. right. So that, that's, I think, where I'm going with that. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I could, see. That. I, I could be wrong. Well, hey, you know, that 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 always makes for an, an interesting conversation. But uh, you know, I think there is, um, because I I don't see Thoreau as rejecting entirely, and this this would be even more controversial um, to Thoreau scholars. I don't see him as entirely rejecting anthropocentrism. But um, 
at the same time, uh, you know, the, to to just completely d- d- separate the, the human from the natural world in a way, um, which which could be an extreme form of human exceptionalism, right? Where, um, yes, we might yes, we're made in the image of God, but we we are uh, created by a creator and placed within a creation, and I I, I don't think there's there's something to the interconnectedness that people like yes. Thoreau and even Emerson identify, right? Is that we, we may be exceptional, as you're arguing here, but um, it doesn't mean – it doesn't take away our sense of responsibility or the fact that we are um, implicated in a, a, a much larger creation. Yeah. So I am absolutely not a Thoreau scholar. You are, so I'm <laughs> right. a little bit quaking here, you know, to suggest any of this, but <laughs> – uh, you know, he seems conflicted about the embodied state. And okay, I think yeah. it's a romanticizing nature, like some pe- readers of him seem to have done, right? Mm-hmm. Nature is kind of fierce, independent, frightening, right? Yeah. And yeah. The, the human person also has to be kind of fiercely independent, and yet we're naive to think we can conquer nature, that we should even do so. Right. And that was very countercultural, right? Because everybody's talking about conquering nature in the time of invention, industrialization, in the middle of the 19th century. Um, I, I construed him as kind of an almost a secular Francis of Assisi. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Strip yourself of all the props of cultural success and live in the woods and you know, right. learn how to love it, right? And combat not external nature, but combat your own internal corruption, which is really mm-hmm. very Franciscan too. And monastic, generally, right? Yeah. So, so Thoreau doesn't accept theology as having a, much of a role, right? unless you found something that I didn't. You correct? No, me, no, he did not. <laughs> no, yeah, he, he he poo-poo's it a lot. So right. at best, he turns to some Eastern religions for his religious uh, help. I guess. Right. Or it, or it's kind of it's, it ends up being a, a kind of self-generated. Um, faith tradition, if you will. Um, it, it, that, that might be a, a, a excessive way of saying it, but I'm not... Uh, we, we, again, we, we could go off on a tangent there. I, for the sake of time... Well, you then, know, I should co-author a, you know, a comparative treatise on Thoreau and Francis. Well, that would be fun. I mean, I, really I'm trying... You know, when paper. you said that, I was trying to think of some secondary literature that... Like, is there anything in the literature that does that? Um, yeah, you you know, would, I you can't know. think of something. <laughs> it's, on, it's on a... Sh- all that stuff's in a box... Back at the house I'm renting right now, so I'm gonna I'm gonna I, I am gonna look that up because it's a it, it that that's a curious idea that I'm you know let's let's table that um, because yeah secular Francis um, uh, would be I'm I'm also picturing people having uh, you know statues of Thoreau in their gardens the way they have statues of of Francis would uh, be a little strange because uh, you know there's no picture that I know of of Thoreau smiling. Um, so it might be a little a little off-putting, which and, and you have to be able to capture Thoreau's eyes in a statue. But anyways, that that's a different uh, <laughs> different thing entirely. Oh, sure. So now, for the sake of time, I'm I'm not going to bring up chapters nine through eleven. Uh, there's still much more uh, that Dennis offers, and it's a fascinating story. So uh, I want to get to the conclusion here. What do you think the social and political and political implications are of these challenges to human exceptionalism, and what do you think needs to be done about it? Yeah, that's huge, right? So, mm-hmm. uh, 
as I, I tend to see myself as mostly a historian, which puts me mostly in the descriptive rather than the prescriptive role. Right. So when these kind of things make me more nervous, right? So I understand that. Um, <laughs> when I'm in a pulpit, then I have no problem being prescriptive. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, in our popular culture, though, we have songs out there that... that, that kind of casually suggest or just assert that we are nothing but animals, right? And that that we should just follow our impulses, right? And I can right. produce many lyrics, uh, but copyright kind of forbids some of that. Right? So, <laughs> but you guys can probably think of your own examples. Oh, you yeah, that song, is, that song is pretty messed up, right? So, um, And the evangelical churches... Uh, and anyone who has at least some qualms about the social impact of a Darwinian assessment of the human, if it is indeed reducing us to an animal status, you know, have regularly said if we teach people they are basically animals, we shouldn't be terribly surprised if they go ahead and behave like them, right? Uh, so we do, however, have a built-in conscience and an awareness of right from wrong. Uh, Paul suggests that in Romans chapter 2. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm glad that uh, you brought up C.S. Lewis. Um, in the appendix to the abolition of man, he notes the widely divergent cultures that have come up with moral norms or rules of behavior that are remarkably congruent across time and across different cultures and languages. And this led Lewis and still leads me to postulate that we have a shared human nature and that natural law structures exist not merely in the physical arena like the law of gravity, but that there are moral natural laws that are discoverable out there. I think that also uh, is Thomas Aquinas, right? Mm -hmm. And possibly the Apostle Paul. So politically, I, I don't really know. I mean, we have one party today that buys the whole notion that we are merely animals who get to make up our morals and our sexual identities on the fly, right? Mm -hmm. We're on a whim, without any real regard for our obligations either to biology or to the supernatural order or maybe even to our fellow citizens. We have another party that basically says, hey, social Darwinism is great. Economic survival of the fittest should play out and the rest be darned, <laughs> mm -hmm. even if they're not really fans of the other aspects of Darwin's thought. So I'm perplexed about the political right now. Mm -hmm. I'm looking for a political party that does not exist, or maybe it does. You can, you can, you can tell <laughs> me where yet. to sign up. <laughs> yeah. It cares about tradition and place and obligation to God, but also cares about creating spaces for genuine love and compassion for one's neighbor and for unselfish regard for the common good to flourish once again. That sounds like the Ciceronian society to me, right? It does. It does, and I, and I think... You know, there, there's an extent to which we can argue about this all day long, theologically, philosophically. Um, but there, there's there's an element of you find human exceptionalism does not have to become human arrogance. Um, but it, it also it is hard to deny the, the the shared image of God that that we we all have, that we all partake yes. in, that we all participate in, and to me. Um, when we spend time in community, whether it's at a, at a conference like like ours or um, just and uh, in, in, in even an encounter like this, um, it it just reminds us of 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 the of what we share as as human persons made in the image of God. Um, and I is there a political answer then to like I mean the implications are can be quite dark. Um, yeah. I mean I, when you're describing phrenology, I think of the way Hitler. Um, 
uh, would evaluate uh, what, what he called degeneracy. Uh, it, it seemed to be just as superficial. Um, but, uh, you know, today that we, we still have many, uh, I think, implications of kind of rejection of human exceptionalism. And C.S. Lewis's abolition of man moves us in that direction, I think. Um, yes. But, and so now, putting the, setting the book aside, though, and I want to finish with, with this, because I'm curious, what, what provoked you specifically to write this book? And who are you, who did you have in mind when you were writing it in terms of an audience? So, um, degeneration theory was at the core of my first book uh, on eugenics. And right. So, you can draw a line from phrenology through criminology and, de- and degeneration theory up into the Third Reich. You know, if you do it carefully, I think you can draw that connection. So, you're, you're astute to, to figure that out. Um, I was wondering, though, what other ways had human dignity become eroded prior to the progressive era? And the 19th century, I thought, was the best place to start. You know, usually people talk about Darwin, as you said, that's well-trodden territory. But mm-hmm. then beyond that, there's the, it can't just be laid at his feet, right? There, there were several, you know, uh, channels through which these ideas are flowing uh, kind of simultaneously, I guess. Um, uh, going back to my childhood, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, there's some pop culture references that I could make. Um, you may be a Harry Potter fan, I don't know, but uh, the original Dumbledore was Richard Harris, right? Well, one of his early okay. films, probably one of his more obscure films, was called A Man Called Horse, and he was uh, okay. uh, it was about a, a guy who was captivated by captured by Native American tribes and basically turned into a work animal, right? And at one point, okay. he he cries out this very poignant moment, "I am not an animal," you know, mm-hmm. and so his his great act of defiance. Right? <laughs> Another one is, of course, the Planet of the Apes, where uh, apes where Charlton Heston says, "Get your hands off me, you blank dirty ape," right? So, right. so, so those two, those are just completely, you know, uh, weird moments from my my pop culture TV watching, you know, youth misspent youth but but somehow connect right i that 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 fundamental cry i am not an animal all right mm-hmm. so it's it's my protest i guess um <laughs> that's a good way to put my, it yeah. my audience would be theologians but of course really anyone who's curious about the intersections of science and religion and history and talking about human nature may be kind of unfashionable today right especially in academia because the assumption is, well, we all just con- socially construct reality. There is no given reality or no real human nature at all, many people think. Mm-hmm. So I suppose I wanted to be kind of countercultural as well. Socrates said we should be gadflies on the flanks of society. Yeah, so, you know, yeah. I, am I a gadfly on the flanks of society? <laughs> so, something like that, I don't right? want to put I mean... myself quite in the category of Socrates. <laughs> no, no, neither would I, and I, none of us, none of us would. But I think you know these these kind of conversations are so helpful. Um, you know the the, the wide rangeness, the interdisciplinarity, uh, the implications of this story for many different areas of inquiry and life. Um, and you know the one thing we we must not forget is the human in the midst of all of this. And what what does it mean to be human? Um, where where do we get our answers to those questions? Uh, th- those are foundational to political philosophy, to uh, philosophy generally, to history, to theology. Um, and I, 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 I'm really glad that you wrote this book. I really enjoyed it, and I recommend it to all our listeners here uh, moving forward. 
Um, so a big thank you to Dennis for joining us today and for talking about his new books. Once again, it's called The Perils of Human Exceptionalism, published by Lexington Books. It's definitely worth a read. And I'm also grateful for Dennis's friendship and his longtime support of the Ciceronian Society. And I can't wait to see you in March, Dennis. Um, Thanks so much, Josh, for all your hard work. And, uh, you know, vice president is is definitely uh, more important than being a warm bucket of spit, right? That's right. That's right. I'm, I got, I'm, I'm worth something. Um, I'm worth something. I'm, I'm more than just a voice. I, maybe I have a radio face. We'll see. Anyways, you've been listening. Thank you so much, Dennis. You've been listening to The Sower, a production of the Ciceronian Society. If you've enjoyed this conversation and would like being in the company of thinkers like myself and Dennis, we invite you to join us for our next conference, March 9th through 11th, 2023, at Belmont Abbey College in North Carolina. Be sure to rate, review, and share this podcast with your friends, and check out our website at ciceroneansociety.org.